Make no mistake about it, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual battle over life. Satan is a liar and a murderer. He's been that from the very beginning. Uh, why is Satan behind murder? Because he hates human beings. Because we're made in the image of God. And he wants to see us destroyed. Why does Satan hate Israel? Because he knows through Israel has come the one who is going to defeat him. And the one who is ultimately going to cast him into the lake of fire. He hates this nation. And his opposition to Israel, as we will see today and in the coming weeks, is because if he can wipe out Israel, then the promises of God cannot be fulfilled. But let me assure you this morning, God will fulfill his promises. So this is the third of five messages on Israel. And during this particular series, as we have previously, uh, I'm going to be taking questions, uh, just Text those questions in. That number will be on the screens as we go throughout the service. Thank you for a lot of great questions we've received. We've received more than we can cover each week, but we're going back and we're picking up some of those questions as well. So we're zeroing in on Israel. And I know that there are a lot of questions about Israel. We said right from the start, what is Israel? And we've defined that very clearly. When we're talking about Israel, we're talking about the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and then through Jacob and through the 12 tribes of Israel, which came from Jacob's sons and grandsons. What is Zionism? That's a term being thrown around. Zionism means that the people are in favor and they're helping Israel to have a place where they can exist. Uh, Does Israel have a right to the land? Uh, We talked about that last week. God promised this land to Israel. Is modern Israel a fulfillment of prophecy? We're going to deal with that next Sunday. Should we support Israel? Those who bless Israel will be what? And those who dishonor Israel will be what? Cursed. Is Israel immune from criticism? No, they are not. They are not immune from criticism. And in the war that is going on right now, in war there are going to be things done that should not be done. And I would say to you, As followers of Christ, our hearts need to go out to all the people over there on both sides that are suffering and that are having injustices done to them. But as we said last week, there is a difference in how we criticize a friend as opposed to how we would criticize an enemy. Has the church replaced Israel? We'll talk about that today. And does Israel have a future? We'll look at that in two weeks. 
Now, the basis of our message is coming from the Abrahamic covenant that was given in Genesis chapter 12, repeated in Genesis 15, and then given in other places throughout the Old Testament. Remember what's in this covenant. Abraham is to become a great nation. Abraham will be blessed. Abraham's name will be made great. Abraham will be a blessing. Those who bless Abraham will be blessed. Those who dishonor Abraham will be cursed. All the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. Out of the Abrahamic covenant flow three other Old Testament covenants. The land covenant. The seed covenant that through David... Someone will sit upon his throne forever. And then the blessing, which is the new covenant, which we celebrate in the Lord's Supper and which we are participants in. This is the new covenant in my blood, that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life. Now, last week, as we looked at the land covenant, remember we said there's a specific piece of property that was promised to Israel. And we put a map up on the screen that shows the, uh, the approximate proportions of the land that was promised to Abraham. And we can see why this is a political hotbed when we look at the countries that are involved there. But there was a specific piece of property promised to Israel. Uh, this promise is an everlasting promise, and this promise has not been fulfilled nor changed. So we come to this issue this morning. Why do some people feel that Israel has been replaced by the church and the promises made to Israel are no longer in effect. Why do some Christians believe that? And we're going to talk about that this morning. But I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew, the 23rd chapter. Jesus came to the earth. The Gospel of John tells us he came unto his own and his own received him not. Jesus was rejected by the Jewish nation. He was rejected by the Jewish people of his day. We're going to see that rejection culminating here and the things that are shared with us in Matthew chapter 23. Follow in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 23. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 829. Or on your electronic devices, come to Matthew chapter 23. In verse 37, we read this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, 
and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. All right, Jesus is crying out in sorrow and in anguish because it was Christ's desire to gather Israel to himself. Jesus came and his desire was that the nation would embrace him, that the nation would put their faith and trust in him. This is the Messiah that was promised throughout the whole Old Testament. And he comes upon the scene. And his desire is to draw Israel to himself, that they will believe in him, that they will follow him. But that's not what happened, is it? No. Israel has rejected him. Jesus said, you were not willing I made the offer to you. I came as your Messiah. But you were not willing to accept me. So as a result of that, Israel's house is left to them desolate. Now that means destruction. That means that judgment is coming. So Jesus has come. He's offered himself to them as the Messiah. They have said, no, we will not follow you. We will not serve you. As a result, judgment will come upon them. So the question becomes then, has God rejected Israel, and is God through with Israel because of their rejection of their Messiah? Now, I want us to look through chapter 23 and see Christ's indictment of this nation and see what's involved in their rejection of him. Beginning at verse 1, of chapter 23, we read this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Jesus is saying they're in the position of authority. Listen to their words, but do not follow what they are doing. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. It says they won't lift a finger to help take the burdens off of you. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. A phylactery was a little, uh, they would either be leather, sometimes metal, uh, pouches that they would put scripture verses into. And they would wear them on their forehead. 
So they're wearing them broad, so everybody will notice it. And their fringes long. On their garments, they would wear fringes, often uh, woven out of blue, and that was to be a reminder to them of the law. And they loved the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbis by others. So Jesus is indicting the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders. He is going to pronounce upon them seven woes. The first is found in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now the word hypocrite means an actor. Someone who is pretending to be someone or something he is not. Woe to you, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe number one. Number two is found in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe number three, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. What Jesus is saying here is, you're finding ways to keep from following through on the promises that you make. You promise things, but you seek to deceive people. Woe number four, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These ought to have been done without neglecting the others. Jesus says, you are so intent on details that you take even 10% of your spices to give them because technically you want to be paying a tithe to God. And Jesus says, that you ought to have done. And let me just throw this in. This isn't in the message today. But you need to be giving to God. If you're not giving to God, then you are robbing God of that which he's entrusted to you that you are to use for his kingdom. Remember, everything we have belongs to God. So Jesus says to these Pharisees, you should have been tithing as you are, but you shouldn't have neglected things that are even more important than the giving. That is having justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now to anyone who might be here that think you will get favor from God by giving and that you can just live how you want to, that your giving will get that favor with God. Jesus is saying, that's not the case. There are things very important, justice, mercy, faithfulness. 
Woe number five is found in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe number six. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. In verses 29 to 30, the seventh woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So seven woes pronounced upon them. And then listen to Jesus' words in verses 34 to 36. Therefore, because of this, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus is saying, judgment is coming upon you. And remember what he announced. Your house is left to you desolate. Now, if the passage ended there, if that was all that Jesus had to say to Israel, maybe there would be no future for Israel. And maybe we would look back and say, well, we don't quite understand these covenants the way that they are given in the Old Testament. But there's more to what Jesus says. Jesus promises to return. Look at verse 39 of Matthew 23. For I tell you, you will not see me again. You will not see me again. Passage doesn't end there though, does it? Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118, 26. Jesus said, you're not gonna see me anymore. You've rejected me and you will not see me again until you are ready and you call out to me and you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Do not see him again. This is a messianic greeting. It means their acceptance of Jesus as Messiah. That Jesus will not come back to earth until the Jews and the Jewish leaders ask him to come back. For just as the Jewish nation 
rejected him. There must be a day when they will lead the nation in accepting him. It is clear that at a point in the future, the people of Israel will see and recognize Jesus for who he was and who he is, their true Messiah. They will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, there is a kingdom coming where Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years. There is a return coming where Israel once again will be the focus of the entire world. Everything will flow out from Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting. In the book of Acts, Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, spent time teaching his disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says this. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about, notice what he he was speaking to them about, the kingdom of God. He's talking to them about the kingdom. Now, just a few verses later, the disciples say to him, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Where are they when they say this? They're on the Mount of Olives. The place that Zechariah says that Jesus is going to return to. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? Notice what Jesus says to them. He doesn't say to them, you've got this all wrong. There is no kingdom coming. I've just taught you for 40 days about the kingdom. That's not what he says. He said this, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus is saying, it's not for you to know when that's going to happen. He didn't say it's not going to happen. Over in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, and we'll be looking at Romans 11 in a couple weeks. It says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. This is Paul writing, and he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Is Christ through with Israel? The answer is no. There is the promise of his return. So because of this, I want to share with you two conclusions quickly this morning. Number one, Israel is distinct and not the church. Israel is distinct and not the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, Paul writing says this. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Notice he's addressing three different groups of people there. Jews, Greeks, or the church 
of God. Israel is distinct. Now, we have something today called replacement theology. It's a theological perspective that teaches that the Jews, because they rejected Christ, are now rejected by God and are no longer God's chosen people. Those who hold to this view say that there is no future for Israel whatsoever because God no longer has a relationship with them. Actually, there are three positions that theologians take today. One, replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel. Two, and this is very popular in covenant theology, that the church is an expansion of Israel or a continuation of Israel. And the third view is that the church is completely different and distinct from Israel. I believe the Bible teaches very clearly that Israel is distinct and separate from Israel. The term Israel is used 20 times and the term church 19 times in the book of Acts. Both of them used in the book of Acts. And never once are they confounded with one another. They are always as distinct groups of people. In order to say that church has become, or that Israel has become the church, or that the church has replaced Israel, we have to take the promises that we've been looking at from the Old Testament and spiritualize them and somehow change them. And I see no warrant for doing that in the Scriptures. I believe God has promised that Israel will be, will be the center of his program after the rapture of the church. Now, someone is going to say, well, what about Galatians 6.16? Some of you have sent in questions that relate to this. The church is not the Israel of God. That viewpoint has been based on a faulty interpretation and a faulty translation of Galatians 6.16. It's evident in the NIV. So if you've got the NIV and you look at Galatians 6, 16, this is what it's going to say. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. But if you look at it in the ESV, the translation we're using this morning, it says this. As and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The New American Standard version of the Bible is consistent with that translation as well. And all who will follow this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. You know, it's interesting that every time in the New Testament that the term Israel is used, it refers to the Jews. And yet some would suggest in this one time, Paul is changing that and saying, now Israel equals the church. 
Well, then who is the Israel of God? The Israel of God are the saved Jews within the church. Uh, Let me kind of try to illustrate this for you. We have ethnic Israel. Ethnic Israel means those who are born as Jews. Within ethnic Israel, there are saved Jews and there are lost Jews. And there have always have been. Throughout the whole Old Testament, there were those who followed God and those who did not follow God. Within the church, and this is the beauty of the mystery of the church, we have saved Gentiles and we have saved Jews. And God has brought them together in one body. The saved Jews would be that the true Israel of God, those who have put their faith and trust in him. And in the future, all of Israel, and we'll see that in a couple weeks, all of Israel will be saved. So let me conclude this real quickly for us this morning. Let's make this practical. What must we recognize? One, God has a plan for Israel yet. Secondly, we are to bless Israel because with that comes the blessing of God. And then we are to recognize that we also are blessed through the Abrahamic covenant because through that comes our salvation. So at this time, I just want to very quickly transfer or uh, move to the, the questions that we may have. Okay, this one kind of goes along with how you were closing up, Butch, so we'll start with this one. Are those who are Israel members of Israel solely by lineage? And the question is in regards to Galatians 3.29. It says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What would lead us to believe the church is separate from Israel and not co-heirs? Okay, I've tried to show you this morning that Israel and the church are never confused in the the New Testament. Paul is talking about that we are the heirs of Abraham. We are Abraham's children when we respond in faith to Christ. He separate in the book of Galatians, he's making it clear that the true followers of Christ are underneath the blessing of the promise that comes from God. Remember, there was the the conflict there between Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac, and Paul talks about this in Galatians, Isaac is the child of promise. Ishmael represents the law and those who have rejected Christ. Paul talks about that in Galatians. How are we the heirs of Abraham, the seed of Abraham? Through faith, that's how we are his heirs. And there's a question that goes right along with what you were saying there. If the covenant was given to Abraham and his offspring, does that not apply to both Isaac and Ishmael? If not, but the covenant applies to Israeli Jews, why does Paul say that Hagar represents present-day Jerusalem in Galatians 5.25 and that Isaac represents the church in verses 28 to 31? If the covenant only applies to the descendants of Isaac, Paul clearly identifies that group as spiritual, not ethnic in nature, and that present-day Jerusalem has been cast out. All All through the Old Testament, it's emphasized that the promise is coming through Isaac and through Jacob and not through Ishmael. When 
Paul says that uh, the descendants of Ishmael are represented by present-day Jerusalem. Present-day Jerusalem was in disbelief. They didn't follow Jesus. So that's, that's, Paul's not saying because of that Ishmael is underneath these promises that God made. He's holding Ishmael out, out as an example of those who do not believe. All right, transitioning away from Galatians now. Okay. What do I do if post-October 7th I discovered I employ someone who is anti-Semitic? I am a Christian, he is a Muslim. Pray for him. There's no warrant for us if somebody is working for us and they believe different than we believe to fire them because their beliefs don't line up. I mean, we wouldn't discriminate against other people in that way. If the guy's doing his job and he's doing a good job of it, I would pray for him and look for opportunities to witness to him and to share Christ with him. This person wrote, I believe you said that one day Christ will rule that area forever and ever. Does that mean the land covenant will not be fulfilled until after the rapture? Yes, the fulfillment of that land covenant will not, it's complete fulfillment, where Christ then will rule over it forever and ever, will not occur, not at the rapture, but when Christ comes back to the earth and sets up his kingdom. Okay, and there's a question that is a follow-up to that. Since the millennial reign is literally a thousand years as opposed to forever, are you saying that after the earth is destroyed and the new heaven and new earth come into existence, that God will remake an area that includes the Euphrates, the Nile, and other landmarks given in Genesis 15 to fulfill the covenant? In other words, I don't see how it can be Christ reign forever and ever if it's not in the new heaven and the new earth. It will be in the new heaven and the new earth. This earth will be destroyed at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's destroyed by fire. It's remade, but then uh, it will be here forever and ever. If some future Israeli government decides to go on offensive to add territory under whatever justification and usurp some of the territories you outlined regarding Qatar to Turkey to Egypt, are Christians to faithfully support that dramatic expansion and probably World War III as a result, in accordance with prophecy. Israel is in the land through unbelief. Israel is not serving the Messiah. And it was never God's plan for Israel to destroy everybody that was in that land. And so if Israel does things that would violate the rights of others, that doesn't mean we support Israel in doing that. We have a support that they have a homeland, a place where the Jews can live in peace. But that if, you know, if they went on the offensive, and incidentally, it's Israel who is being attacked, not Israel going out and starting these wars. It's Israel being attacked by those who want to exterminate them. And so it doesn't mean, once again, that we support Israel in everything they do. If this promise of land has not been fulfilled, how do we know it's part of the covenant? And why are the people of Israel known as God's people when they are just as sinful as every other human? Because God chose to work through this nation. They are God's chosen people. Not chosen, every one of them right now in the sense of salvation, 
but chosen in the sense to be the conduit through which God will work. Now, one day, all of the Jews living in the land will be saved in a moment, and that. Now, that relates to salvation. What was the other part of the question? Um, and this will be the last <laughs> question. We take. I didn't have it in front of me now. One second. Oh. I don't know what the second part was. I can't find it now. <laughs> Why, if the promise of land has not been fulfilled, how do we know it's part of the covenant? Remember, we talked last week in the covenant, there are things that come to pass immediately, some that start to come to pass, and some that could be off in the future. The reality is God promised a specific land. God promised that they would be in that land forever. God keeps his promises. And he'll keep these promises that he made to Abraham and the nation of Israel.